So I'd like to uh, begin by telling you a story of a fourth grade boy uh, who lived in Southern California. His name was Billy. And Billy was bullied by several people in his class. He would go to school, often come home in tears, uh, was just bullied constantly in school. And when you're bullied constantly in school, you try anything you can to deflect right, to get the attention off you and onto somebody or someone else. And so uh, Billy deflected by telling the people who were bullying him and telling his friends. He, he, he made up this lie that he, he even, some said, believed in himself. But he made up this lie and told people that Jay Leno was his uncle. And on weekends, they'd cruise around in Jay's Lamborghini. And of course, you can imagine that didn't help his situation any. Uh, in fact, they would make fun of him because of that. And so one night, Billy gets out his computer and he finds an email to Jay Leno. And he emails Jay Leno and tells him what's happening and says, by any chance, would you happen to come by and pick me up in your Lamborghini and take me to school one day? Jay Leno says he received the email and he was really intrigued. And so he tracked down Billy, got a hold of Billy's parents, he said, it really is me. I'm Jay Leno. I could come by and meet you. I would really like to pick up Billy in my Lamborghini and take him to schools one day. And so they said, sure, go for it. That'd be great. And so they planned it all out. The day was set. And so Jay Leno comes by in his Lamborghini. He picks up Billy. And they go down towards the school. And they time it perfectly for when the buses pull in and the guy's bullying him and his friends step off the bus. And they kind of go in the courtyard of the school area. And now all of a sudden comes Jay Leno and Billy whizzing in Jay Leno's Lamborghini Countach. And they pull up to the side of the curb. <laughs> Passenger door goes up sky high like it does on a Lamborghini. Billy steps out and he says, thanks, Uncle Jay. I really appreciate the ride. And Jay Leno says, no problem, Billy. We'll go cruising around some more this weekend. Have a good day. And door goes down. Jay Leno drives off. Jaws on the concrete, right? What an entrance. There's never been a better fourth grade elementary school entrance in the United States history than that. The, the entrance that we're going to look at this morning in this morning's text had even greater impact than that. We're going to see an entrance that had significant impact because it was impact that lasted beyond this life but had eternal impact. When Jesus entered Jerusalem the last week before he was going to the cross, is on Passover week. It was an entrance that changed the world forever. And that's what we celebrate Palm Sunday. What I want to do this morning is unpack that so we can truly see what was happening in that moment. Because I guarantee you, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, and you look at what happens in the scripture, you will see that that moment was more impacting than probably anything we can imagine in our lifetime. God was at work, and Jesus is king, and he was declaring his kingship over all realms of life. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 19. And in this passage, we're going to see and unpack four significant Palm Sunday features. Four significant 
Palm Sunday features, four things that tell us Jesus is king, that tell us he is the savior of the world, that tell us he is the king of all kings and lord of all lords, and his kingdom will last forever and ever. And the first feature that we're going to see is almost like a backdrop to this statement because the first feature that we're going to see is the fact that this took place in a really, really crazy world. Let's look at John chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. The Apostle John writes this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They were going to try to kill Jesus, but now they want to kill Lazarus as well. Verse 11, For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Little backdrop story, chapter 11, the chapter before this, there's this friend of Jesus named Lazarus. He dies. He's in a tomb. Jesus goes, calls him out of the tomb. Lazarus resurrects from the dead and walks out of the tomb. People saw that and said, he, Jesus is God. Jesus is king. Who else can raise the dead? And because of that, there was this great following towards Jesus. Now, the religious rulers of the day, the leaders, didn't like that because now the tension came off of them and is now being placed upon Jesus. And so because of that, the religious leaders of the day set out not only to kill Jesus, but now they want to kill Lazarus. Do you get this? So the religious rulers, the people who were called to be on earth, to represent the heart and mission and love of God, now want to kill an innocent person because it was damaging their image. Do you see how messed up that is? That's crazy. The church at the time, the religious leaders, the pastors of the day, want to kill an innocent person to protect their image. That's how messed up this society was at that time. And that's just the religious sector. If we get into the political sector, if we get into the business sector, if we get into the science sector, it gets more and more corrupt and weird. This was a crazy, crazy world where Jesus establishes his kingship and begins to fulfill prophecies said about him about going to the cross. This is a messed up world. The religious leaders were supposed to be carrying out the mission of God, the heart of God in the world, and they fall into the point where they want to take innocent lives just to protect and promote their self-image. It was in this crazy world that Jesus declared who he was. It was in this crazy, messed up place that Jesus reveals that he is the Son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world and give eternal life. 
It was in this crazy world that Jesus set up his kingdom and established it and began it to the point where one day when he returns again, it will be fulfilled and complete. It was in this crazy world that he says a kingdom is coming that's going to be light years better than what we're experiencing now. It was in this crazy world that the gospel, the story about who Jesus is and what he's done, flourished and took off like wildflower. Gospel will not kneel and bow to any. No matter how crazy the world is, the world cannot stop God. And the world cannot stop his gospel from going forward. We look at our world and we see it's crazy. We're reminded even this last week how crazy of a world we live in. But don't ever forget, church, the world that Christ was a part of and announced and did all these things was even crazier than what we see. There isn't a world made crazy enough that can reject the love and the heart and the mission of God. Don't ever forget that. It's a comfort to know there's not a world too crazy, too evil, too backward, too messed up that Jesus can't enter in, transform, and make it new. He did it in that, this world He's going to do it in our world and he's going to set it up permanently to last forever and ever and ever when he returns again and sets up the new world, the new kingdom and the new earth and new heavens for us to live in with him. Palm Sunday promises us there's no world, there's no situation, there's no pain that's beyond the touch of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And because of that, we can have hope this morning. Even as we dust off our hearts from the residue of hearing about the horrors of this week, we can have hope because of who Jesus is. Not only is a feature of this Palm Sunday story a crazy world, but it's also a place, a feature, there's a feature of astonishing praise. Look at verses 12 to 15. The next day, that same great crowd that come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is a title for the people of God. Do not be afraid, people of God, and see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. First thing John wants us to notice is that this is a big crowd. We see that in verse 9. We see that again in verse 12. This wasn't just some small, obscure assembly of wackos who had this crazy idea. This was a large crowd. And they're proclaiming Jesus as king as he rides on a donkey. They're quoting Psalm 118, 26, 27. This is a psalm for Passover. Passover was a festival that the Jewish people partook in that celebrated the freedom of their slavery in Egypt. 
Passover was an event that the Jewish people yearly participated in to remind themselves that they were free as a people from the slavery of Egypt. So these psalms announce freedom from slavery. Earthly slavery, yes. But these psalms are also messianic promises. Promises that a Messiah would come. People of God in the Old Testament had this belief that a, a promised Messiah would come. And when the Messiah would come, he would take away their sins as their Savior, and he would establish a kingdom and a rule that will last forever. See, Jesus comes and he takes away the sins of the world. And when he came the first time, he inaugurated and set up his kingdom. And that's what he's declaring here in John 12. And when he comes again, he's going to complete his kingdom, establish it, and it will last forever and ever and ever and ever. And he will rule and reign. And then that kingdom he completes when he comes the second time, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more evil. And he will rule in all of his goodness and all of his heartbeat and all of his mission. And it will last forever and ever. And people will declare, you are the king of kings and lord of lords and there is none like you. And what we see here in this text in John 12 is the beginning of that moment. We see it inaugurated. We see it, the wick lit. They're shouting in verse 13 and 15, Hosanna. They're shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. John likes that phrase, blessed the king of Israel, which means bless God's people forever. And he uses it here and he uses it in chapter 18 and 19. They shout Hosanna, which means save us now. They're saying, you are our king, save us now. The Old Testament's Hosanna meant save us now. In Jesus' time and place here, it also had a bent to it of praise the Lord. So they're saying, save us now, O Lord God. There's this acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And even when they're saying it, some get it and understand what they're saying, some don't. And we're going to see that in a moment. They're waving palm branches. It's a symbol of triumph and victory. The bottom line here is Jesus is not entering into the temple of Jerusalem like he did in the past, like a fellow Jewish person going to temple. This time, he's entering in as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a total difference. Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus is rightfully praised as King. There's another feature that pops out of this text about Palm Sunday, and it is a volatile statement Jesus makes this volatile statement about who he is. And in the statement that he makes that's volatile has two parts to it. One part of it is not really expressed in the text, but it's there. The other part is expressed clearly in text. We're going to look at the unexpressed part first. It's just reality. And it's how Jesus is coming into the temple. So you have this temple of Jerusalem. It has this stone, huge stone wall all the way around it, 360 degrees, surrounds it completely. 
There's four gates at least, a couple more than that, but there's at least four gates, north, south, east, west. The political and religious rulers of the day would always enter the north gate or the west gate. And they would enter with pomp and circumstance and pageantry and fanfare. They'd make a huge deal. They'd say, look at me, this victorious Roman king. And they'd come in that way. Or this victorious Roman general who got back from battle and they'd come in through the north and the west. Jesus came in the east. He wanted to distance himself from political and military rulers. He wanted to say, I'm king, but I'm bigger than the kings you've ever seen in this earth. I'm king, but I'm not like the political, military rulers you've seen. My kingdom's different. I'm not here to set up a geographic, national, earthly kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. It's bigger than that. I'm not like those kings. Another thing that's amazing and bone-chilling is that in the Old Testament, during Passover week and, and during the purification celebrations leading up to that, the priests would come and they'd lay their hands on a, a symbol. They'd lay their hands on a goat. This is where we get the word scapegoat from. And then the priest would take the sins of all the people and place them on this goat by using all sorts of ceremony. And then the goat would leave the temple and the sacrificial goat would go out the east gate. And then in Passover, when it came time for sacrifices, they'd bring sacrifices in the east gate. Jesus entered the east gate saying, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You don't need any more sacrifices after this. After what's going to happen in a few days on that cross, the curtain will be torn. You will not need any more sacrifices. I am the ultimate and final sacrificial lamb. And when I atone for the sins of the world, then I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom that will have no end. That's what's happening here. It's what he's setting up. He's lighting the wick to this amazing fulfillment that's going to take place that God's people will see. There's something expressed in the pa passage as well. Not only is he distancing himself from the political and military rulers, not only is he declaring himself the sacrificial lamb, but we see that he's doing something else. He's coming in on a donkey. Verse 15 says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. As I said, people of God, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is a direct passage from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, an Old Testament prophet who said, a Messiah will come and the Messiah will be on a donkey's colt. You see, in that passage in Zechariah 9 was talking about the Messiah that's going to come, take away the sin of the world, and establish his kingdom. And now that's quoted here, shouted here, and Jesus doesn't rebuke it, he fulfills it. 
He's letting it declare that he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come. He is the one that Israel has longed for, that Israel has waited for. Well, they said, will you please come? He is here. And in all these things, Jesus is making a volatile and definitive statement. He's distancing himself from the political military rulers of the time because he's saying his kingdom is greater. His kingdom is bigger. All of you are focused, he's saying, on this earthly Roman Empire and how bad they're treating you and how they're oppressing you as Jewish people because at the time the Roman Empire was oppressive to the Jewish people and they wanted somebody to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and make their life on earth better and Jesus is saying no, 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 your vision is way too small. My kingdom's beyond what you see here. It's a kingdom that you can't even imagine the goodness. It's a kingdom that you can't even imagine the authority and the kingship of God, what it's like to rule and reign in a place. And he's making a statement saying that his kingdom is the kingdom of God that when he returns a second time will be completed and established in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, if Jesus entered the north or the west on a horse those who thought he was overturning the Roman Empire of the day to be a national leader or a political leader, they would have went into a frenzied insurrection against the Roman Empire. And Jesus dampened their nationalistic expectations by coming in the East because his mission was not about a geographic nation. His kingdom and his mission was bigger than that. His mission was to save people's souls from their sin and to save people from death forever in Hades. His mission was to establish a kingdom that would last forever where his rule and his righteousness would reign over all aspects of life. And this will happen when he returns. The kingdom of God is inaugurated here. It will be complete and fulfilled when he comes again. Jesus wanted them to look to something greater than the earthly politics of their day for their hope. Jesus wants us to set our hope in him and nothing else. Our allegiance to Jesus Christ must be far greater than any other allegiance in our life. As Ryan prayed, Jesus needs to take the rightful place in the throne of our hearts and there's room on that throne for nobody else but him. He is the only king that fits there. He's subverting Roman rule and authority and he's appealing to the Old Testament to show he is king of a kingdom where sinners are cleansed, where captives are set free, where those who are diseased are healed and those who suffer are restored and they will live in that state forever and ever and ever with him when he comes again. Palm Sunday tells us at least two things that are extremely important about God as we read this passage. The first one is that God keeps all of his promises. God keeps all of his promises. This text, John 12, you see Zechariah 9.9, 9, 
in verse 15. That's fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah prophesied it thousands of years before this happened, years before it happened, and now it's taking place. It's fulfilled prophecy. That's how we know that God, the Bible is accurate, true, and something we can anchor our lives in. There's over 200 prophecies about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that have already been fulfilled. God will do what he promises to do. We can rest in his character, in who he is, in his faithfulness of how he's acted in the past. And Palm Sunday reminds us of that. That God keeps all of his promises, that he is a covenant promise-keeping God that's worthy of our trust. The second thing Palm Sunday tells us is that Jesus truly is the rightful king over all. Jesus is king. Whether, whether the people here recognized him or not, it didn't matter. The truth is he was the king of all kings. He remains the king of all kings today. He is king for today and all of eternity. And we as his creation are his very subjects and the proper response for us to this king is to bow down and worship him and place all of our lives underneath his lordship. And we do that and declare that by how we live out our lives today, day after day after day. Do our lives declare the kingship of Jesus Christ as our Lord? Because he is so worthy of that. We declare his kingship in this world by, by how we choose to treat people, by how we spend our time, by how we spend our money. Earthly kingdoms will pass away, but the kingdom of God will last forever and ever and ever. Several years ago, there was a British journalist and follower of Jesus Christ named Malcolm Muggeridge who was invited to a breakfast in Washington, D.C. for a group of dignitaries. At the breakfast, he had a time to speak, and so he got up to the podium, and after some introductory remarks about himself, he started commenting on different world affairs that were taking place. World affair after world affair after world affair, he had a pessimistic-type tone with all of them. If you asked him, he'd probably say, I'm just telling it like I see it, telling it like how it is. Somebody in the crowd said, you've been very pessimistic as you shared about this. Is there any reason for optimism in your life? And Malcolm Muggeridge said, my friend, I could not be any more optimistic than I am right now because all of my hope in this life is resting on King Jesus and his kingdom alone. And when your hope is resting there, you have nothing but optimism because his rule and reign will last forever. And then he said this, imagine what would have happened if the church in Jesus' day would have hung their hopes on the Roman Empire instead of Jesus himself. The Roman Empire fell in 476 AD. 
the kingdom of God lasts forever. The kingdom of God will have no end. The kingdom of God will go beyond what we can even think or imagine. And as God's people, we need to place our hope for this world in him and his kingdom, nothing else. The final feature of this Palm Sunday passage I want to look at is the fact that there were different perceptions going on. People were picking up and seeing this in different ways. Look at verses 16 to 19. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, so he died, he was resurrected, he ascended and glorified, did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. The people who were blown away when they saw what Jesus did with Lazarus continued to tell the world about who Jesus is and what he can do. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees, the religious rulers, said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. As word gets out about who Jesus is, hearts are turning towards God. You see, when Jesus gets a hold of your heart and reveals who he is, the reflex reaction is to tell people about who he is. These people couldn't help it. They see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They see who he is. They have to speak about who he is. But even in the midst of this story, we see differing things happening, differing, differing perceptions Confusion. One group we see are the disciples. It says here they didn't realize who Jesus was until he rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then they looked back on this day and said, oh yeah, he came through the east gate. He was on a donkey. He fulfilled that prophecy. When this was taking place, it says here the disciples weren't there, hey, Peter, isn't this just like Zechariah where he's on a donkey? No, that wasn't taking place. The disciples missed it. Some got it, probably who were cheering, though they were mixed in their emotions, but the disciples didn't realize it until it was done. Now the Pharisees, however, that's a different story. Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was doing. The Pharisees knew the Old Testament better than anybody, and they knew the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah better than everybody, and they saw exactly what Jesus was doing. That's why they were so angry. That's why they wanted to put him to death. It shows us that Bible knowledge separated from goodness of the Holy Spirit can be a dangerous thing. Paul warns us of this when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We need to take in the scriptures and understand it and grow in the scriptures, but we have to do so in a way of love. We have to do so in the way of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to have heads full of Bible information apart from the Spirit of God. There are many people who live their lives like that, and they're the most antagonistic people you've ever met. 
let alone arrogant. And they do very little for the kingdom of God. We don't want Bible information. We want Bible transformation. We want these very words of God to be spoken into the depths of our soul where they bring healing, restoration to the brokenness, hope to live by, power to live a holy life. Then there were others who said, let him be king and overthrow the Roman Empire. They thought he was making a political statement and they missed the bigger picture. And then there were probably a few who were shouting Hosanna who said, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to set up a kingdom that's going to be unbelievable. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to save his people from their sins. All these different perspectives. How about us? Who is Jesus to you? On this Palm Sunday, who is Jesus to you? Is he sitting on the throne of your heart as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, ruling over every part of your life? Or is he less than that? Jesus is extending us an invitation to come to us where we're at with him right now. No matter where we've placed him in our lives, he's extending an invitation to us this morning to come into the mess of our life because that's what Jesus is an expert in. He comes into broken places and makes them whole. He comes into places that have rejected him and gone their own way and made a hash of it and he restores and he renews and he brings good life. And he's extending that invitation to us now. Most people are embarrassed when they have an unexpected guest show up at their house to come in and their house is a total mess. There was a pastor named Mike and his family and they went to train pastors in Jos, Nigeria, and they flew over to Nigeria. There's a big, long flight. It was with he, his wife, and his kids, and he was in the hotel room, and they just arrived. Big, long flight, so they unpack all the bags, throw stuff all over. Kids are playing with toys. They hopped in the shower. They took that great shower after a nine, 12-hour flight. They threw wet towels on the floor. Kids got into a water fight. There's all this stuff happening. The toys all over, curling irons laying around, clothes, dirty clothes all over the place. It looked like a bomb went off. It was just a disaster in this hotel room. And all of a sudden, Mike opens the door and he sees this kind, smiling Nigerian gentleman who says, I'm here to clean your room. The room is a disaster. Mike said he apologized profusely and said, maybe you should come a different time. And the man assisted. He said, no, no, no. We have things waiting for you down in the lobby. You guys can go have fun. I will take care of this. And he walked in and, and Mike said he saw the room and it, it didn't change. His expression didn't change at all. 
Mike began to apologize profusely. I'm so sorry, this is a mess. We just got off the plane. We just got here. We had a, and the man interrupted him and said, Sir, stop apologizing. This is not a problem. This is the reason I came to put your room in order. Jesus gives us that same invitation to the messy, broken, what we think are hopeless places of our life. He comes in, he says, this is why I came, to put this room in order, that you may be whole, that you may be healed, that you may experience my forgiveness and reflect my grace and my goodness to a world that desperately needs it. Do we get that? I want to suggest this week, as we remember Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sin, rising from the dead, as we hold and think about that this week, I want to suggest we do two things as followers of Jesus here at Crossview Church. The first thing I encourage you to do this week is think about how, did, how has Jesus Christ changed your life? How has Jesus Christ changed your life? And I encourage you to really block some time this week. You have five days before Good Friday. Before Good Friday, find 10 to 15 minutes, sit down with a paper and pen and give serious thought to how has Jesus Christ changed my life? What has he done? What did he do? How has he changed your life? Why is your life different now because of who Jesus is and what he did? Give thought to that during this week. as a way to honor God. as a way to honor Christ in this holy week. How has Jesus changed your life? The second thing I want you to do is to tell someone about it. After you've written it down, after you've given it thought, I want you to tell someone about it. Maybe you, as families, you set up an appointment. Hey, Wednesday night for, after dinner, we're going to have our time where we're going to talk about how has Jesus changed our life. Maybe you're going to go to a family member. Maybe you're going to go to your spouse. Say, I just got to tell you what Jesus did. Maybe you're going to go to a friend. Maybe you're going to go to a coworker. Maybe you're going to go to somebody who does not even celebrate Easter or know who Jesus is, but probably needs to hear it. Maybe you're going to say, hey, maybe God's going to give you the courage enough to say, hey, can I tell you why I'm celebrating Easter this week? Can I tell you what Jesus Christ has done in my life? Who are you going to tell? You have to tell somebody. You could even tell somebody who is not a Christian, who doesn't go to church, who's far from God. You have my permission to say, you know what? Would you mind over lunch me telling you about what Jesus Christ did in my life? Because I go to this Crossview church and their pastor's a little, and he's telling me that I have to tell somebody what Jesus did in my life or I'm not allowed back to church. And so would you please let me tell you what Jesus, I'll, I'll back you if you do that. Who is Jesus to us? What has he done? And when we really understand that, our reflex reaction is to tell people. 
How can we keep love this amazing, grace this forgiving, mercy this rich, just to ourselves when a dying world is out there and the clock is ticking before he comes back again? Maybe you invite him to church Sunday next week. Follow the Lord in that. Jesus Christ is king. Can I get an amen? amen? And Jesus Christ's kingdom will last forever. Can I get an amen? amen? And you know what? He loves us way more than a former talk show host loves a kid who's being bullied. And he loves us way beyond the brokenness of our lives and the things that we regret and we wish we could go back and change. And he just says, come. That's why I'm here. I enter the mess and I make you new. Will you receive the invitation of Jesus Christ into your life? I hope you do. Let's pray.